Our scripture reading this morning is going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. And if you're using a pew Bible, that'll be on page 1016. First Peter 3.18, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word and now the preaching. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, may we never grow tired of singing songs like that last hymn we sang. What glorious truths are there, and they all are rooted in texts like these before us. And I pray this morning that you would preserve us from being able to read this and be unaffected by it. What sin, what, how heinous and wicked of us to read a text like this and be unaffected. How cold and distant could our hearts possibly be? This is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the good news for the universe. And I pray this morning that your spirit would come now with power and declare this truth in a way that thrills your children again. And for those who are not your children, that they would see that this is it. This is what the universe is for, for the first time. And be gripped by that reality and converted in this seat that they are sitting in this morning. Come with power and help. I humble myself before you, King Jesus, and long and look forward to declaring the glories of your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, it's been said that this text, right before you, sitting on your lap, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do with you, that this text is one of the hardest texts in the New Testament to understand and to expound, to preach. In fact, one commentator said this that I read this week. This passage is one of the most debated from the earliest days of the church, and it has the reputation for being the hardest in the New Testament. And here's why. Just kind of scan through Peter's words for a moment. There's some really hard and difficult phrases. For example... Jesus went and he preached to spirits in prison. What in the world does that mean? He preached to spirits in prison. 
And then he references Noah and the ark as if that's supposed to help us. And then you go back to Genesis 6 and you try to figure out, okay, so if he references Noah in Genesis 6, what, what does he say about spirits in prison in Genesis 6? And there's nothing. Absolutely nothing in Genesis 6 about spirits being in prison or Jesus, of all, of all people, going and preaching to spirits in prison. So you're just, you're just left scratching your head like, what is going on in this text? And then you scan down to verse 21 and you come across another problem. Peter says, baptism now saves you. Whoops. <laughs> what about the Reformation? I thought we were saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. And here, Peter, one of the apostles and, 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 and fathers of the church, says that we're, baptism now saves us? I mean, whoa. What's going on with this, Peter? Well, look, before we dive into this text and try to unravel some of this stuff, let me start with a principle for you this morning, and it, and it works like this. All Scripture is equally inspired by God, but not all Scripture is equally clear. I think this text is, makes that point clear. All Scripture is equally inspired by God, but not all Scripture is equally clear. In fact, I find this really interesting because in 2 Peter, and I quote Peter, here's what he says. Peter says this himself. He says in 2 Peter, some of Paul's writings are hard to understand. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I find that a little ironic, Peter. I mean, I can imagine Paul saying, hey, Peter, um, actually, I, I was reading some of your writings and I got a headache. I, I didn't understand what you were talking about. I find this kind of ironic that, that, that Peter is calling Paul out for being difficult to understand. And you look at this text, you say, what in the world is Peter talking about? Anyway, here's the deal. When we come to difficult text in the Bible, here's a good rule of thumb for you. The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And if you hold on to that, you will be helped as you read Scripture. It's important because it keeps us from having an undue preoccupation with things that we will never fully be able to understand until we meet the author who wrote it. If somebody comes to you, this week or at the end of the sermon, it says, oh, I, you know, I've already got that text figured out. <laughs> you can gently remind them that they do not. You know, there's, it's been said that there are over 180 interpretations of this passage. Now, I don't say that to at all alarm you. I say that because it just shows that in a fallen world and with difficult texts of Scripture like this, we are humbled by God. It's a good way for God to humble us. It's a good way for us to get on our knees. Why does God inspire difficult texts like this? What's the point of that? Why would God do that? Why would he inspire hard texts? I think one of the reasons God gives us passages like this is to create in us, listen, an utter sense of dependence on God. Our desperation magnifies God. When you come to the scriptures overconfident that you know what this means all the time, you are saying you're really not that dependent on God because you're pretty smart and you kind of have this figured out. And what God wants to do is drive us sometimes to utter dependence and desperation for God, and that magnifies him because it, we confess that we are, we are weak and he is strong, and then he gets the glory. And Paul says... 
to Timothy, he says, think on these things. Think on the things that I tell you, for in them God will give you understanding. Think. We have to think hard. Now, here's what I want to do this morning. With all that said, I want to guide you through this text in a way that is both helpful and practical to you. So let me just kind of give you a bird's eye view of the text. Let's just look at the lay of the land here and try to figure out what, what are the pieces involved here and how can we begin to kind of unravel this. In verses 20 and 21, go ahead and look at that. Peter makes a comment here about baptism. And, you know, if I was you, I, what I would do is I would put brackets around those verses, 20 and 21, and here's why. Because when you stand back and you look at the whole text, 18 through 22, what you're going to see is that this material on baptism is actually a, a digression from Peter's main point. It's, it's a parenthesis. It's a, it's a little digression here that Peter's making. When you examine the whole text, what becomes clear is that Peter is actually giving us here a mini theology of the person and work of Christ. That's the main objective of Peter here. And the focus of Peter's theology is on the kingly rule, the authority, and the reign of Christ over all things. That's the big point. And so we're going to focus there, and then we're going to come back to this issue of baptism at the end. All right? Now, if you like word pictures, some word pictures tend to help people, then uh, I want you to imagine this. Christ is wearing a crown this morning, his kingly crown. And on that crown... Jesus has four jewels, and each of those jewels represents a different way in which Jesus has established himself as king. What are those four ways? Here they are. Number one, his death, verse 18. His resurrection, into verse 18. His proclamation, verse 19. And then finally, his ascension, in verse 22. All of these are ways in which Jesus establishes his rule and authority. Now, in one sense, these are the most fundamental things that we could ever say about Jesus. And you think about it. I mean, first, that he was crucified, and why? Second, that he was raised from the dead, and why? Third, that he made a proclamation of victory, and why? And fourth, that he ascended to the right hand of God. And why? These are foundational things about Jesus. And the point of this text is that Jesus has triumphed over sin, death, hell, and reigns as king over all things. That's the point of this passage. And, and so Peter shows us these four ways in which Jesus' death establishes himself as king. And so the first jewel in the crown of Christ is his death. It's his death. By his death and crucifixion, listen, by his death and through his crucifixion, Jesus triumphed over sin. Big news, encouraging news, powerful news, life-altering news, world-shaking news. Jesus triumphed over sin through his death on the cross. And here Peter's giving us a simple explanation of what Christ has done for us. And, and what's the first thing we need to know? It's this, that Jesus, through his death, reigns. He reigns over the power of guilt and sin. Now, all through this letter, Peter's been talking about this issue of suffering. In verse 17, where Pastor Keith ended last week, the issue was suffering. If you suffer justly or unjustly, we need to, we need to figure out how do we deal with suffering in life 
And Peter is specifically speaking about people who suffer justly. And then he says, for Christ also suffered. I find this so interesting. It says, Christ also suffered. Uh, the thing that hit me when I read that was, Peter's saying, look, you're suffering, and, and, I, and I feel the weight of your suffering, and, and, and I just want to remind you that Christ also suffered. It seems to me like it should be the other way around because Christ's suffering is the pinnacle. Christ's suffering is the worst. Christ's suffering is the issue. And what, and what Peter's doing is saying, hey, look, you have suffered. You got a small suffering. You got a tiny thing that you're dealing with. Christ suffered. If you want to talk about suffering, Christ suffered. Christ really suffered. Now you think about the, the suffering of Jesus. His sacrifice was painful. His sacrifice was undeserved. It was unrepeatable. And it was purposeful. It was painful. Think about these things. First, it was painful. Peter says in verse 18 that he was put to death. Think about those words. In other words, Jesus didn't die a natural death. Jesus was put to death. And he died for our sins. That's why he was put to death. Your sin, your sins are what put Jesus to death. And that sin that we're so flippant about, that we're so indifferent about, actually sent Jesus to the cross. Oh, that we might remember this the next time that we are tempted to sin. Instead of choosing sin, that we would see Jesus on the cross. That we would reach out to Jesus and instead of of hammering another nail that we would reach out to Jesus and help and say, oh God, oh my Savior, give me strength to say no to this temptation. That's what we need to do. We, we need to see Jesus on the cross. What our sins did, it put him to death. It was painful. But not only was it painful, it was unrepeatable. Notice again verse 18, for Christ also suffered once. For sins. I love that. Hebrews says, unlike the high priest who had to enter the holy place every year with blood not his own, Jesus simply entered once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just put it away. Jesus comes in, charges in, Jesus steps up as, as the man, as the Lamb of God, and he says, I'm going to deal with sins once for all. When I'm done, it's over. Year after year, these priests are making sacrifices. And Jesus says, I'm going to end this sacrificial system right now, right here, and right now. And that's what he does. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Chapter 10 of Hebrews says, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. One offering. That's how good it was. When Jesus cried from the cross, it is finished, he was making a profound claim. He was saying that the work of atonement is over forever. For Christ did not need to die daily to save us. Christ did not need to die yearly in order to rescue us from sin. Christ died once and that was enough. It's enough to pay for your sin. It's enough to forgive you. It's enough for the world. In his one death, he bore the sins of many. Think about this. Jesus so satisfied the justice and judgment of God against our sins that the record of condemnation and guilt that stood against us was wiped clean once and for all. What powerful truth for us this morning. Wiped clean. Your slate is clean. Oh, I'm sure you don't feel like that. 
I'm sure you didn't walk here this morning feeling like you have a clean slate. But can I remind you, dear friend, your slate is crystal clear. It is clean. Why? Because Jesus was put to death. What a savior. What a savior we serve. What there's more is not only painful and unrepeatable, it was undeserved. That that really comes out of here. Think about the cruel and bitter scene of Matthew 27. You remember when Judas comes back and he returns the 30 pieces of silver? And what does Judas say? He says, I have sinned for I have betrayed innocent blood. That's what Judas says. Now, it seems like an obvious point that Jesus, the death of Jesus was undeserved. No one here in this room would deny that, but we must emphasize it because it's pivotal to our understanding of the gospel. The suffering of Jesus was undeserved, right? And it was for sin, right? Okay, so if Jesus had no sin, then he must have been suffering for the sins of someone else, right? So whose sins was he paying for? The text here says the unrighteous. You know, a good translation of this would be a righteous man on behalf of unrighteous people. The word righteous is singular. The word unrighteous is plural. A righteous man on behalf of unrighteous people. Just think about it. Let that phrase sink in. The righteous, holy, unstained, pure Jesus being put to death for the sake of, for the sake of, on behalf of ungodly, wicked, unrighteous sinners like you and me. For the sake of. Jesus was put to death for the sake of, on behalf of, for the help of, for the assistance of. Unrighteous people for me on my behalf with my advantage in mind. What hope this text gives. Do we have any sinners here this morning? May the wonder of his death stagger us again that a man would die unjustly, bear pain that he never deserved and do it as a substitute for the sins of ungodly people. Friends, because Christ has done this for us, our response should be extreme adoration and worship. Let us bow in humility before Jesus this morning. You can bow there in your seat, but just bow your head to Jesus. Give him the praise due his name. Well, his death was painful, it was unrepeatable, undeserved, and finally it was purposeful. Peter says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Here's the purpose, so that he might bring us to God. Oh, let's just love this text. Look, one verse, this is the most succinct summary of the gospel in the New Testament. One verse. You should memorize it. You want to share your faith? You want to share Christ with others? Memorize this verse. Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. I don't know a more succinct explanation of the gospel in one verse than that. Amazing. But it was purposeful. All the other glorious aspects of the gospel are means to this great end that he might bring us to God. There is nothing that can satisfy us more. There is nothing greater than the treasure of God himself. And Christ brings us to the fountain of pleasure, to the source, to the ultimate spring of life, to God himself. Jesus brings us to the source of all happiness and satisfaction in life. 
There is nothing that can satisfy us more. And Christ brings us to that. And think about it. He brings us to the Father, not just on friendly terms. That's big enough accomplishment. He brings us to the Father, not just on friendly terms, but he brings us to the Father as sons. As sons. Jesus, we are sons now. We were enemies of God and, God. and Jesus brought us to God, not just on friendly terms, but said, this is your son. Son, this is your father. This is staggering. Oh, the wonder of the cross. Do you see now the significance of Mark 15? Do you remember in Mark 15 where we read that the temple curtain was torn in two? You know, sometimes we read that text and, and we think, oh yeah, you know, that's very interesting. That's, uh, you know, it's kind of cool, you know, the whole idea of a curtain kind of being ripped in two and it's kind of neat to tear things and see things torn and... And two, and you know, it's kind of interesting, and, and we just pass over that. But do you understand what's happening there? Listen, the minute Jesus died, the curtain was torn, not when he was raised from the dead. Listen, the minute Jesus died, the minute he died, the curtain was torn in two. As soon as a sacrifice for sin was made, bam. The curtain was open, and what did that symbolize, friend? It symbolizes this. Listen, the curtain was torn in two, and Jesus was saying, it is finished. Do you want to know God? Then come on in. Do you want to know the reality of having your sins forgiven? Then come. Come now. Do you want to be able to lay your head on your pillow at night? And knowing that heaven is your home and Christ is your savior, come, come now, come now. The curtain is open. It has been torn in two. You can come into God's presence. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is freedom. We can come to God's presence. We are no longer in need of a human mediator or sacrifices. Jesus is the one mediator to God. We are united to Jesus. We can come to God. We have access to God. Has that truth ceased to amaze you? You have access to God. Daily, moment, hour by hour, access to God. How cold-hearted are we sometimes? Moment by moment, we have access to God, and instead we consume our minds and our thoughts with all kinds of things that don't matter, frivolous things in this world, world in this life. And we have access to God. I can come right now into God's presence. I can get down on my knees right here and I can begin to pray and pour my heart out to God and he will hear me and he will hear me with delight. He will turn his ear to me and he will say, my son, speak. I want to hear you. I love you. Talk to me. Tell me what's on your heart. Tell me what you need. Tell me what your cares are. Tell me what your concerns are. Tell me what your burdens are. And he'll hear me. We have access to God. Jesus brought us to God. And here's the question. My friend, have you come to God? Have you been brought to God? I, I'm not asking, have you come to church? I'm asking, have you been brought to God? Not has your wife or kids come to God, but have you? Have you acknowledged for yourself that you're a sinner in need of rescue? Have you acknowledged that Christ is your only hope? Have you gotten alone with Christ and confessed your sins? Have you gotten on your knees in that quiet place and begged Jesus to forgive you? If not, I urge you, my friend, to do that here. Do that now. Do that in your seat right here. Jesus is willing to bring you to God. 
Won't you take him up on that? He's here. I'll take you right to God. I'll take you to the God who can crush you in a moment. But I'll take you on friendly terms. It's your choice. You can be crushed by God someday, totally crushed, cast into hell forever, or I can bring you to him on friendly terms. This is, uh, this is the offer of the gospel. I love the hymn, Hallelujah, What a Savior. I asked uh, our brother to have us sing that this morning, and I'm so glad we sang it before the sermon because I just love those words. Isn't that a great hymn? Isn't it great? I just, I just never get tired of singing that. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came ruined, sinner, ruined sinners to reclaim. I'm a ruined sinner, and I desperately needed to be reclaimed. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon, forgiveness, sealed my pardon with his blood, Seal, sealed it. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement, full atonement can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. What a hymn. What lyrics. Well, the, this, that's the first main jewel in the crown of Christ. It, it, the, rest are, the rest are shorter here, but just I wanted to spend time on this one because it's just so pivotal. The death of Jesus for us. Now, the second jewel in his crown is, is his resurrection. Verse 18. And by his resurrection, Jesus is triumphing over death. Peter says in verse 18 that Christ was put to death in the body but made alive by the Spirit. Made alive, okay? So the Spirit was the divine agent that gave the body of Jesus resurrection life and power by the Spirit, all right? In his famous sermon at Pentecost, it was Peter who said, it was not possible for death to hold him down. He pictures death here. It's like Peter is picturing death here as Jesus as, as entering into some contest against the powers of death. And the idea is that Jesus experiences all the powers of death. And, and Jesus allows the powers of death to sort of master him for a season. But then so powerful is our Lord, so holy is our God, that the power of death could not hold him down. And so he arose again in power and glory and conquered death. It's been said that you can't keep a good man down. And the most fundamental sense, death could not keep Jesus down. Jesus threw death on the mat. In the death of Christ was the death of death. And for all who trust in Jesus, death is destroyed and its power. And here's what that means for us. We have nothing to fear. Oh, dear Christian who suffers from living in fear on a consistent basis, you have nothing to fear. Listen to me, hear me. You have nothing to hear. God wants you to be comforted by these words this morning. Nothing to fear. And friends, when that truth begins to grip you, I'll tell you what it does. It changes how you live. Fearful people are paralyzed people. But people who don't live in fear are free to take risks. And you need to be delivered from that bondage of fear. Some of you are gripped by it. You need to be delivered from this bondage to fear. You have nothing to fear. Hebrews says, being delivered 
from the fear of death that holds you in lifelong bondage, you are able to live in the joy and peace of your Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says. And that's what God wants for you. We have nothing left to fear, even death itself. You don't have to fear death if you're a Christian. And friends, it's knowing this that gives us the strength to risk our lives for the sake of the gospel. Arif Khan was a great man and a martyr in Pakistan. And once a friend of mine said to him, he and his wife were martyred, and a friend of mine said to him once, brother, if, if you guys stay here in Pakistan and continue to do this work, they may kill you. To which Arif replied, we've settled that issue. We've settled that issue. And it's a good thing because they were martyred and it's a good thing they settled that issue. Have you settled that issue? You know, I wonder if some of you aren't even thinking about that issue. You're living in America. Why do you need to settle an issue like that? Oh, friend, you need to settle that issue. You know, times are changing. This world is not going to be the same in 10 or 15 years or 20 years. You have no idea what's going to come against you. You better settle that issue. We need to settle that issue. Listen to a Christian, to hear a Christian's last words as he stares death in the face. I love the story of Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John. Let me just read you a couple lines from his martyrdom. Says this about Polycarp. The governor brought Polycarp into the city and he was met by Herod, the captain of the police, who tried to prevail upon him not to be martyred. He said to him, he said, why? What harm is there in saying Caesar is Lord and saving yourself? Polycarp refused. And so they took him to the stadium. Swear by the genius of Caesar, swear the oath and I will release you. Revile Christ. Polycarp said, four score and six years have I been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The commander said, well, I have wild beasts here and I'll throw you to them except that you repent. Polycarp said, call for them. Then the commander said to him again, I will cause you to be consumed by fire. If you despise the wild beast, then I'll consume you by fire unless you repent. Polycarp said, you threaten that fire which burns for a season. And after a little while is quenched, for you are ignorant of the fire of the future judgment and the eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Come and do what you will. And with those words, they burned him alive. The thing that grips me about that is that he says, you threaten that fire which burns for a season. His body burned for a season. You know what, though? He settled that issue. Oh, friends, that kind of Christianity is born on your knees. It comes from being alone with God for long hours. That 15-minute devotional isn't going to cut it. That three minutes of prayer on your way to work isn't going to give you that kind of life. May God help us to learn to live in this country without having our senses dulled. Oh, may God help you. 
Oh, may God help you to live spiritual and holy lives in this country. This is, a, this is a sick and perverse place to live. This is a hard place to live. We are lulled to sleep here. May God help us as people. Oh, that God would make us a people of prayer, that we would have one passion and one purpose to know God. And friends, listen, that's my heart for you above all things. As a pastor, before all agendas, before any ministry, before any vision, before any changes, before any transformations, before anything else that happens in this church, if you want to know what my one passion and my one desire and my one burden for you as a pastor of this church and where I want to see us go and where we need to be led as a congregation, it's this, on our knees. What's your vision for the future? Where do you want to lead this church? I want to lead us on our knees before God to be holy men of God and holy women of God. Because if we do that, friends, everything else will come. All other things will happen. But we have got to pursue holiness and prayer as a congregation. And I am calling us. I am calling us to this. It's hard work. It's going to be spiritual sacrifice and discipline. But people of God, hear me. Unless we get on our knees, unless we live there, our lives are going to be empty and fruitless. Time is running out. We have got to seek God in this way. Well, that leads us to the third crown, the third jewel in the crown of Christ. And it's his proclamation of victory, verse 19. Notice what he says in these very strange words of 19. Says this, Jesus was made alive by the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, when you read those verses, those words, all kinds of questions come to your mind. Who are these spirits to whom Jesus preached? When did Jesus preach to them? What did he say to them? Well, in summary, there are three major views here one of which I think is certainly wrong. The other one that I think is possible, but probably not correct. And one that I think is most likely. So let me give you that. The first is the idea that Jesus descended into hell and preached to the spirits of those who had perished, listen, who had perished during the times of Noah. These are, these are dead people, okay, that are in hell And Jesus goes down and preaches to them and gives them a second chance to repent. I just think that's completely wrong. The Bible nowhere indicates that we have a second chance to repent. So we can just throw that view out. The second view is that Jesus was preaching by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of Noah. In other words, some people think that during the time of the flood, the Spirit of Christ was preaching through Noah a message of repentance to the people. But I think that's a bit odd because Peter calls them spirits in prison. He doesn't call them people. He calls them spirits. And that might make sense if you think about, obviously, a dead person. His spirit goes somewhere. But the problem is that nowhere really in the Bible is the word spirit used that way to refer to human beings. There's a couple of places, but they're, they're highly nuanced. And it doesn't seem to fit that. Plus, it says Jesus went. Why would Jesus need to go anywhere in Genesis 6 if he's preaching through the Spirit? Why would Jesus need to go anywhere? He's in heaven. So for a couple of reasons, I don't think that makes good sense. The third view is that these spirits are fallen angels. And that after Jesus died and was raised again, he went to these spirits in prison and he announced his victory over them. 
In other words, there are certain fallen angels or demonic beings that God has imprisoned. And the idea is that Jesus goes and proclaims his victory and triumph over them. Now, since you'll be interested in which view I favor, you can probably assume it's the third view, and that's correct. And I'll tell you why. I, if you look at the text, it's clear that Peter is going through a sequence of events here. Just, just look at it. You're looking down at your Bible and follow this. He's going through a series, sequence of events in the life and ministry of Jesus, and that sequence appears to be chronological. First, Jesus dies. He died, then he was raised, and at the end of the passage, verse 22, he ascends. Okay, now stuck right in the middle of his resurrection and ascension is this whole business of proclamation. This, this idea of, of Jesus proclaiming to spirits in prison, what did he do? The text says that he went and preached. Now, it's interesting that the word he uses here for preached is not the word that he uses typically for the preaching of the gospel. It's a more general word that describes a person making any type of proclamation or announcement. And that's what I think Peter means here. What he's saying is that after his resurrection, Jesus announced, he proclaimed his victory to these spirits in prison, these fallen angels. Now, who are these spirits? Well, it would seem to me that they're fallen angels, these supernatural spirits or demons that blinded the eyes of the entire world during the days of Noah. And I think here's why that's the case. The word spirits here, when it's used on its own in an unqualified way, it always refers to supernatural beings, always. Moreover, in 2 Peter and Jude, both of these texts speak about a group of fallen angels or spirits that are being kept in prison. So 2 Peter, in 2 Peter, for example, we read this. 2 Peter 2, we read this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness. So here he's connecting Noah, right, with these spirits in prison. Hmm, that's interesting. And then in Jude, we read in verses 6 and 7, that the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So what Peter seems to be saying here is that after his resurrection, when he defeated death, our Lord went and announced his victory to his enemies who were held in prison by God. And I think all of that is confirmed by Colossians chapter 2, which says, Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, having triumphed over them. So there's a lot of reasons why I lean this direction. Now, I wouldn't be dogmatic, and I want to be humble with the text and say that clearly this has been a struggle for people forever. But I think this makes the most sense out of the passage. Here, what's the point of this? How does that affect you on Wednesday? It's big. Let me, let me connect it. Here it is. The point of this is that these principalities and powers have been put under the feet of Jesus. He is the Lord of heaven and earth, and one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord, even the spiritual realm. And they will confess that Jesus is the king. And that's important for us because we are being assaulted by these powers of darkness 
even in America. But you go to India, you go to third world countries, you feel it big time. Here, we're still being assaulted. You're being assaulted through the TV, through the radio, through the secularization of this country. That's how you're being assaulted. And don't think that the devil is not highly active in our culture, in our society, in your home. Oh, people of God, listen, hear me. The devil is massively at work. This demonic realm is at work. He is deceiving your children. He is trying to ruin your families. He's trying to tear down your marriages. He is trying to ruin you with pornography and with alcohol and with drugs. And he's trying to ruin you with your temper and your home. And, and, God, in, and God steps in and he says, listen to you. Listen, I have a good word for you. Jesus has authority over this demonic realm. They're coming against you. They are trying to, trying to tear you down. But know this, Jesus is king over those people, over those beings. That's big news for us. We're being assaulted by these powers of darkness. To some degree, we know what it is to live in the world in which the minds of men and women are blinded by the gospel. To some degree, we know what it is to live in a world that is persecuted like Noah. We know what it is to live in a world where there are forces coming against us that we do not have the power to defeat in and of ourselves. And here's the glorious truth of the gospel. Jesus has overcome them. You remember Luther's great words in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress? And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall slay him. <laughs> Praise God. Thank you, Lord, that he has done this for us. Well, that leads us to our last point. The fourth jewel in the crown of Christ, and it's his ascension. Verse 22. He is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Remember how the psalmist put it. You remember this? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until all your enemies are made a footstool. Psalm 2, ask of me and I will give to you the nations for your inheritance. And you know, the implication of that is this. If you belong to Christ, who is supreme over all, then nothing can destroy you. That, that's Paul's point in Romans 8. If, if God is for us like this in Jesus, then who could possibly be against us? Now, it's no wonder here that Peter was thinking about baptism. So what's the connection with baptism? Well, because it's clear, because these are the words Jesus used when he inaugurated the sign of baptism. What did Jesus say? He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples and baptize them. All authority. Since all authority has been given to me, therefore you go and make disciples and baptize them. Since all authority has been given to me. And if that's the case, if Christ reigns over all, then what should be our response to him this morning? We've seen those four jewels. His death his resurrection, his proclamation of victory, his ascension. If that's true, what should be your response? Here it is. Verses 20 and 21. I told you we were coming back to baptism. Here's the response. Repent. Believe. 
and be baptized. That's the response. This text is at first a hot text to debate about baptism. It's a text to lead you to repentance, to lead you to faith, to lead you to baptism. Love this. Verse 20, God's patience waited. (laughs) Aren't you glad God's patience waited? Aren't you glad God's patience waits? Why does God's patience wait? Because the blood of Jesus. God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, the word used there is antitype. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, listen, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. So lest you be confused, it's not the removal of dirt, it's a conscience issue, and it's rooted in the resurrection. So I don't really think it's a water issue. There's nothing in here that should lead us that direction. Here's what's going on. Peter's reminding us of a time when God determined that in one mighty act of judgment, he would wipe out the human race with a flood. And he did. The floods came and only eight people were saved from the waters of God's judgment. Now, when Peter describes the flood, he says that baptism is something like that. It's really interesting. And here's what he means. In the Bible, water is not only a picture of cleansing, water is a picture of destruction. So that when we use water in baptism, we're symbolizing both the cleansing power of God and the destructive power of God. Have you thought about baptism this way? Anyone who is submerged in water and held there dies. Unless he's raised up from that water. And so being immersed under the waters of baptism represents one's death to sin and death to self. This is what Paul teaches so clearly in Romans 6. Also, Jesus describes his own death two times in the New Testament as a baptism. Mark 10 and Luke 12. Jesus says his death was a baptism. And so in the New Testament, the death of Christ is described using the words of Psalm 69. What does that say? It says this, O Lord, the waters have come up to my neck. I have come into deep waters. The floods engulf me. You think about that language. When Jesus was on the cross, he was experiencing the flood waters of divine judgment. And like the ark, the waters pounded upon Jesus, the waters of God's judgment. They engulfed him. And for three days, three days, Jesus was submerged under the water of God's judgment. But after three days, Jesus came out of those waters and he rose again. And this is why Peter anchors our salvation in the resurrection, verse 21. Jesus is the only safe place for us to hide so that we will not incur the judgment of God. I I think it's astonishing to think about baptism this way because in Jesus, we have an ark to hide. Jesus is our ark against the floodwaters of God's wrath. So clearly, Peter's not teaching that water is saving anybody. I mean, water destroys you. If you're submerged under it, if you're not raised up out of it, Water destroys you. That's clearly not what Peter's teaching here, that water saves a person. So what does he mean when he says baptism now saves you? Well, he means this. 
Baptism saves you not because of the washing of water. Baptism saves you by the resurrection of Jesus. Listen, when an appeal is made to God for a good conscience, which is just shorthand way of saying repentance and faith. What, what, is, what appeal do we make to God for a good conscience? That appeal is our desire to repent. That's faith. It believes that, God, if I appeal to you, you'll save me. That's what this is. This issue is repentance and faith. The way anyone is protected from the wrath of God is by responding to the risen Lord Jesus in repentance and faith. He is the only safe place to hide from God's wrath. Maybe you've been washed with water but you've never been saved. Maybe you've been baptized, but it didn't mean anything. Here's why. Water isn't enough. Baptism isn't enough. You must repent and believe. You must run to Christ. Only he can save you from God's wrath. If you're not hidden in Christ this morning, listen to me, run to the ark. That is Christ. Run to his ark. The doors are still open in his ark. Well, We've seen this morning the crown of Jesus, and it has four jewels, his death, resurrection, proclamation, and ascension. By his crucifixion, he reigns over sin. By his resurrection, he reigns over death. By his proclamation, he reigns over the powers of darkness. And by his ascension, he reigns over all. And that means the guilt of our sin has been dealt with. The power of death has been broken. The threats of hell are now empty. And Jesus is seated on his throne right now, ruling the nations. Does that bring you hope this morning? Brings me a lot of hope. Because you know what? I look forward to that final day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is king. But until then, nothing Nothing, nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God. And when you hear that, when you hear that, isn't there something inside of you that just wants to stand up and just shout for Jesus? <laughs> because he's not only Lord of all, he's your Lord. Praise his name. Let's pray. risen and ascended Lord on high, ruling the nations, seated on your throne high and lifted up. We praise you, King Jesus. We praise you. What a God we serve. Jesus, just receive the celebration of our hearts this morning as we sing to you, as we close in a song. May we sing. May our hearts literally just burst of celebration and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.